Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up, shalom, and welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me as always, my friend, my teacher, my mentor, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hi, Caleb. Shalom. How's it going, brother? Going very well, thank you. Excellent. Um, how's your week been, man? This last week was pretty crazy. You know, this last week for me has been extremely crazy. Uh, we had so much response, good response, to Dr. Brown's uh, interview last week about Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, and attaching pictographic meaning to words and those kind of things. Uh, it was a very good conversation. We have a lot of people who just came right out and emailed me and said, came right out and said, nope, Dr. Brown uh, is a charismatic. He has defended going on uh, Benny Hinn's show, and so he is not to be trusted. Um, well, if that's what you think, that's okay. But I would argue that his degree is in Hebrew, and although I might disagree with some of his theology, I would consider Dr. Brown an expert in the Hebrew language. So that's where I'm coming from. Also, uh, one of our listeners, one of my good friends, he's coming over for, for Pesach. I, I pretty much reference his name every single week now. Uh, my good friend Adam Smith has done us the great pleasure of uh, transcribing the first part of our interview with Dr. Brown. So we have in writing uh, what Dr. Brown said, and you can uh, check that out. I believe it's going to be on the blog, the Torah Resource blog, torahresourceblog.com, and uh, check it out. You can print it out and hand it to people. Okay, well, this week, Rob, are you excited? I am super excited. I don't think a lot of people know what's going on this week. Maybe they do. We've been... uh, Promoting it on Facebook, we have a very special guest this week. His name is Dr. Martin Abeg. He is a uh, professor at Trinity Western University, and uh, he is a expert. That's right, an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've been wanting to talk to Dr. Abeg for quite some time, and today we're going to talk to him about works of the law. Um, anything that you want to say about this before we get started, Rob? Well, just uh, I had the great privilege to meet Dr. Abeg at our Torah Resource Conference, two, I think it was August of 2012. That's right. Where he and his colleague, uh, Dr. Peter Flint, came down, made the long drive to Tacoma. And boy, what, a, what an amazing day. We had a great turnout, a lot of great discussion. Mm-hmm. We broke bread together. That's right. And broke uh, pizza bread together, and I and I learned some of the history that that uh, your dad Tim Haig and uh, Doctor Abeck go way back. Cool, great. All right. Well, without further ado, Doctor Abeg uh, received his Master's of Divinity from Northwest Baptist Seminary. He did graduate work at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and finished his PhD in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Hebrew Union College, along with publishing many books and articles on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He is currently serving as the co-director of the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute at Trinity Western University. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Abeg. Thank you, Caleb. 
Absolutely. So let's launch right into this. You know, we've been talking uh, on our show recently about 4QMMT and this phrase, works of the law. Uh, You wrote an article entitled 4QMMT, Paul and the Works of the Law. Can you first talk about 4QMMT and why it would have any bearing on the understanding of Paul? Yes. Uh, 4QMMT uh, has only been known to uh, uh, the world since, uh, oh, I'd say about 1990, perhaps. It, uh, well, it actually goes back into the 60s, but we didn't know the text until 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, uh, it was uh, uh, passed around as uh, a bootleg, actually, for several years until the, uh, the, uh, uh, the edition came out in 95, I believe. Okay. Uh, and in 1990, uh, you know, we saw a bootleg copy of the text, and uh, uh, as a part of that text, uh, the last uh, section of it uh, dealt with the uh, term maaseh Torah, mixat maaseh Torah, some of the works of the law, and that uh, immediately uh, rang a bell in my mind. And uh, since then, I've thought about this document. It has definitely uh, uh, made my world uh, a lot more interesting. So can you talk a bit about uh, the paper that you wrote and uh, the conclusion that, that you came to? Well, the Maaseh Torah in Hebrew, uh, you know, that uh, was most uh, easily translated works of the law, which then, you know, jibed with uh, Paul's uh, writings in both uh, Galatians and Romans. And it's, so, of course, the, the immediate thing that you have to do is uh, try to figure out, uh, you know, one being in Hebrew, Mixamaseh uh, Torah, and the other being in Greek, can we equate these two? Mm-hmm. And that uh, that is fairly uh, straightforward, I think. The uh, you know the uh, ergon of uh, Paul and uh, nomos uh, is uh, almost a one to one correspondence by checking with uh, with the Septuagint to Maseh Torah. So that uh, was the first step in making that connection, uh, which is a very important connection because uh, we did not have access to that language in any, uh, any Jewish writings of this time period. In fact, uh, some commentators had suggested that Paul was uh, uh, building up a straw man here, that uh, we didn't know of these works of the law, mm-hmm. and that uh, term has been... Uh, has been debated for years, uh, and it's only uh, since uh, 90 and then 95 when this uh, document came out that we really had uh, the important background information to understand what it actually means. Okay, great. So I actually want to pass this over to Rob now. Rob, uh, you've actually looked into this. Uh, you, uh, we've both read uh, Dr. Abeg's paper, and you've looked into this this phrase "works of the law" a little bit. And we've we've actually been talking uh, in relation to Dr. Wright's understanding of "works of the law" and how Paul uses that. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and ask uh, maybe some of the questions that you have for Dr. Abeg? Well, great. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, it's so great to be able to have this chat with you, Dr. Abeg. Good to um, talk to you again, Ralph. <laughs> you know, uh, in your article, you engage with the work of N.T. Wright, and, and we're big fans of Dr. Wright uh, at Torah Resource in many ways, not that we agree on everything, but uh, a lot of his uh, recent publications around Paul and the nature of justification and some interaction even in the ev- evangelical world with John Piper about this justification issue. Uh, It seems that uh, in your article, you touch on that uh, justification was was something that was desired, right? And and that these, this Ma'aseh HaTorah or the 
the works of the law are somehow functioning for, at least in the world that we could uh, maybe understand for QMMT, um, those work together. The notion of being reckoned as righteous, which also echoes Paul's language, as you point out in your paper, along with his words. So it's not just uh, works of the law that is the parallel with MMT and, and Galatians. And so I was wondering if you could speak uh, a little bit about uh, some of these other touch points that really kind of seal the deal in your mind in terms of uh, connection with uh, patterns that Paul was dealing with, but also what are our limitations and uh, where, where, do we, where can't we go? You know, where, where might we want to go, but we need to be careful? Yeah, that, th- those are good questions. And uh, the, uh, you know, the first step that uh, just making the connection between uh, the Qumran document and Paul was an important one for me. And then I began thinking about uh, just what does this mean then? What, uh, what can we make of this? You know, the connection was one thing, but the, uh, the theology is, uh, is then important. And I think the article that you refer to is where I made that step. And actually, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Tom Wright as well. And I've, uh, Tom and I have uh, talked about this document. Uh, you know, I haven't talked with him uh, recently about it, but uh, back in the, uh, the early, oh, I'd say about 10, 12 years ago, we had some uh, conversation and uh, more or less agreed to disagree on a couple of points. <laughs> and one, one of the important uh, issues, I think, is uh, can we equate the works of the law that uh, is in the Qumran document or are in the Qumran document and the works of the law that Paul talks about? I think we can. And Dr. Wright uh, is uh, doubtful of that. Uh, My reasoning is that, uh, first of all, when you look at uh, Paul, uh, it it seems in the context of Galatians especially that uh, that Paul is dealing with uh, the issues of identity uh, that uh, the Jewish community wanted the... uh, uh, the Galatians to identify themselves as Jews. So the uh, the points of, uh, of the argument there are uh, certainly circumcision and uh, kashrut, you know, keeping kosher, and the uh, the festival days, mm-hmm. and uh, those those types of issues, uh, which are more, you know, they they really don't fall into the uh, the context of moral ethical issues. They they really are identity markers. Uh, seem to me to be on the same plane as the issues in 4QMMT. Uh, the difference being is that uh, you know the Galatians is speaking to a Gentile community. We're dealing with uh, you know large umbrella sort of uh, issues, uh, the uh, issues of circumcision and so forth. Uh, the issues in 4QMMT tend to be the uh, you know farther down the chain. Uh, here we have two Jewish communities talking about uh, their doctrinal differences as to how they would uh, uh, sacrifice or uh, offer uh, uh, various things in the temple. Uh, but uh, the the plane, it seems to me, is the same. You know, we're talking about uh, issues that uh, that separate one group for another, and the uh, the you know what we could call those are identity issues. You know whether it is small. Uh, small identity issues between two Jewish groups or larger identity issues between uh, the uh, Judaizers and uh, or the false brethren, as Paul call, calls them, and the uh, and the Galatians. So let me ask, can, can I jump in here? I want to ask, I, I just want to clarify what you just said. So um, in 4Q MMT, when they talk about works of law, are they talking more about 
things that would be uh, community law as opposed to things that are actually found in the Torah. In other words, fences around or additional laws upon the actual laws of Torah. Or do we actually see interchange with direct laws of Torah? Well, you know, it depends on what you mean by laws of Torah. Of course, uh, you know, there are stipulations about how one must sacrifice, how one must offer sacrifice in the temple. But here in 4QMMT, I mean, we're really dividing things rather small. I suppose in uh, in parallel with uh, the Christian community, this would be talking about uh, different modes of baptism or something of that nature that would separate mm-hmm. one group from another. So we're not talking about you know, Ten Commandment moral ethical sorts of issues. We're really talking about doctrinal sorts of issues that would separate one synagogue from another synagogue or one church from another church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Paul is dealing uh, with that kind of issue, it seems to me, in Galatians. You know, we are we have these Gentile believers that uh, that the uh, uh, you know those that uh, were following Paul and his teaching uh, into these communities were saying you have to become Jews. You have to take on these identity markers uh, before you can uh, become part of our community. Mm-hmm. Doctor Abeck, would you equate that then with this status of righteousness that is desirable? In other words. Uh, if we look at the MMT intra, uh, uh, intra-Jewish polemic, so one Jewish group and another, where the stake is, look, if you don't do it our way, it's you're not going to have righteous rec- righteousness reckoned to you. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then in Paul's situation, it seems like he's trying to tell the uh, or these Galatians are fearing that they are not indeed going to have righteousness accredited to them unless they listen to these. Uh, influencers or whatever we want to call them, and Paul's trying to reassure them that there's that they will indeed that they do indeed just by faith, you know, being in Messiah, they are already reckoned as righteousness. Could you talk a little bit about um, the nature of uh, groups? All you know, being involved in a group, like wanting to be identified in this group versus that group, right? And the nature of righteousness in that first century world. Yeah, here, here we step into, and, and you're right, one of you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, it's not just the works of the law, but it's the reckoning of righteousness that, uh, that ties uh, the uh, MMT uh, to Galatians. You know, the, the, these are the only two documents, plus Romans, that uh, mention these documents in all of antiquity. So it's, it's almost impossible to me that we're not uh, dealing with the same issues here. Uh, the, the reckoning of righteousness is uh, is a point that, uh, and here we enter into a theological issue that uh, that I have not uh, explored fully. You know, this is one of those things that I would like to take on. You know, in my uh, in my uh, evangelical upbringing, reckoning of righteous uh, has been equated with salvation. Mm. However, uh, as I read uh, Galatians today, it uh, would seem, ironically, that reckoning of righteousness is actually uh, perhaps more uh, to what we would uh, think of as a sanctification. In other words, uh, this is how one is, uh, is rated within the community, more or less. This is uh, the level at which uh, you have gained uh, piety within the community. So it is not questioning one's salvation, but questioning one's growth in the faith, as it were. And the uh, the uh, false brethren in Galatians were uh, telling the Galatians that uh, they must be 
circumcised. They must keep kosher. They must keep the festival days. And if they didn't do that, they would have no standing within the community. Uh, likewise, in 4QMMT, the writer of 4QMMT is telling his uh, uh, the uh, the one who, who the letter is addressed to that uh, these uh, works of the law, they must do if they want to be in good standing in the community. So that uh, that's the parallelism between these two documents, two letters from antiquity that uh, really have a very similar point to make. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, I, I Another angle on the 4QMMT document, I wondered if you could just take a moment and um, unpack with respect to what we find in the Mishnah, you know, later rabbinic hal- halakha. Have you done any investigation? I think uh, maybe... Uh, uh, Larry Schiffman. I'm yes. trying to think of some of these guys that have done this. Have Have you looked into that, Doctor Ebeck? Uh, just a little bit. I followed Larry's uh, arguments. Uh, he He believes that uh, in the there are uh, about 24 uh, debates going on uh, that we have the results of that are called the works of the law in 4QMMT. And Larry finds uh, about four or five of those uh, that have parallels in the Mishnah. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, a couple of them are uh, are linked directly to the Sadducees. Uh, the one that uh, comes immediately to mind has to do with the uh, the preparing of the the ashes of the red heifer. Hmm. Uh, the one who prepares the as- ashes uh, is uh, uh, becomes unclean in the preparation. And I've forgotten the fine points of it, but the uh, the the gist of the argument from Larry's point of view is that uh, these would be the Sadducees. From from my perspective, the uh, the argument of 4QMMT and the Sadducees, uh, interestingly enough, is uh, what we would think of as the uh, the simple meaning of Numbers 19, the preparation of the ashes for the red heifer, where the Pharisees really are the odd guys out. So I, I don't see it as a uh, as a clear-cut uh, parallel to the Sadducees, it seems to me to be the simple reading of the text. Uh, and so I, I doubt whether uh, 4QMMT is taking on a Sadducean position. Uh, that's only coincidental, actually. But there are parallels, and that's important, uh, that uh, we recognize that uh, these discussions that we see in 4QMMT uh, were, were later codified in the, uh, the Mishnah. We're talking about later, you know, maybe as, uh, as much as three, four hundred years later. So that's an important uh, issue, especially for the Jewish community. To uh, 4QMMT speaks to us as uh, as Christians, but it uh, it also has much to say about the roots of Judaism as well. So it's a very important document from antiquity. Mm-hmm. Quick, oh Caleb, sorry. No, no, go for it, Rob. I want you to keep going. I wanted to ask uh, now uh, about MMT from if, and this might be a, a difficult thing to point out, and because of a lot of unknowns, but. Just the document history. I mean, do we do we know, or do you, have you uh, settled on a, a general picture of how MMT entered, you know, its origins and kind of maybe how it was passed on through the later Second Temple period, maybe even ending up in in the hands or you know by enthusiastic uh, users of the text who weren't in fact uh, related, maybe to the to the original author. I, could you share your thoughts on the history in the Second Temple period of the Halakhic letter? Yeah, that, that's a very good question, and I don't think that we're going to be able to answer that one uh, solidly uh, from the, uh, the, the information that we have. Uh, 4QMMT uh, 
many scholars believe that it's uh, it's quite early uh, among the uh, the documents uh, found in the caves of Qumran. This comes out of Cave Four, by the way. There are six documents that uh, that we have from that cave, uh, and the language uh, that uh, is represented in these documents at first was uh, you know Milik was one of the early scholars, uh, Qumran scholars. Uh, looked at the language and he thought that it uh, that it actually looked Mishnaic to him. Uh, Elisha Kimron, uh, in later discussion, has shown that uh, that perhaps was uh, was a bit overstated. But the language is distinctly different than the, the other scrolls that uh, we have from uh, from uh, the caves at Qumran. Uh, the the writer of 4QMMT uh, and the addressee are unknown to us. There have been uh, there's been speculation as to you know the writer is the teacher of righteousness and the addressee is the the wicked priest in Jerusalem, but uh, I don't think we'll ever really know uh, who wrote it, uh, who the addressee was. Uh, but it does seem that it was uh, it was fairly important to the Qumran sect in that they had six copies of it. Thankfully, they did because all of them are fragmentary, and with six <laughs> copies, we're able to uh, reconstruct probably about half of the letter. With that, with that detail alone, just from a, a, a kind of an inventory of the extant, you know, fragments that you have from the from all the caves, what significance does that tell you from your perspective, Doctor Apic? When you have a text that has multiple copies in, mm. in this library. Yeah, well, it does say that uh, this was an important text to them. I mean, this isn't just a random text that uh, that found its way into uh, the library. Uh, you know, a text that uh, that we may speculate uh, was a an outlier, perhaps. But the, given the fact that there are six documents, and uh, here uh, we can uh, compare that to other documents from uh, from the caves, uh, for example, Serachayacha, the community rule, or the uh, Covenant of Damascus, which also have about the same number of documents. Those were very important key documents, I think, to the uh, to the doctrine of this sect. So I, I think we have to say that uh, for QMMT, uh, we must see it in uh, in a like fashion. I had a question. Uh, since we're talking about the origin of 4QMMT and, and, and the passing along through uh, time of that, uh, this is a little bit off subject. So actually, Rob, do you have anything else that you want to ask about 4QMMT directly? No, I, I wanted to step back out and talk about kind of uh, yeah. what we call Jewish sectarianism, but go, go for it. Okay, well, the one question that I've had actually since you were in uh, Tacoma, I believe it was almost two years ago now, uh, was you helped co-author the introduction to the Dead Sea Scroll Bible, mm-hmm. and uh, you talk a little bit, you know, I, I don't know if it was you writing this or if it was uh, the co-author with you, uh, but you guys talked a little bit about uh, who might have authored the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it seemed to me that you were kind of hinting that the sectarian group at Qumran that is traditionally associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls might not actually be the authors of these scrolls and that perhaps it was someone else. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Has there been any new information? I know I, at the last SBL meeting, in uh, Baltimore, I uh, went to a, a paper where someone presented evidence that uh, Qumran was not a pottery uh, manufacturer plant like they thought at one time, but it, that it was an actual sectarian group. Have you done any more research on this, and do you know uh, or do you have any more information on this? 
Well, this isn't uh, this isn't at the center of my uh, research, but it is something that I uh, I keep up with uh, the conversation. Uh, I, you know, there are always going to be those scholars that uh, that are going to poke. poke uh, uh, their finger at uh, you know things that uh, that are are held by the majority uh, you know where that that's how one makes a name for themselves and and this <laughs> this particular uh, issue is one that uh, will continue to uh, to attract attention I, I think it is uh, is definitely true from my my studies of uh, the language and from looking at the the uh, the character of uh, of the the texts from Qumran especially the biblical texts that uh, you know the early uh, statements that were made as to the authoring of the text and the copying of the text that uh, that had them all coming from the uh, the scriptorium at uh, Qumran that that was definitely overstated and perhaps uh, some scholars have have swung too far the other way but I think where we'll end up with in this is uh, is to conclude that uh, there there definitely were some manuscripts that were copied at Qumran uh, authored at Qumran even and then copied. Copied uh, at Qumran, uh, or copied among Essenes. Let's put it that way. They may not have been at Qumran, but may have been at other sites uh, in the uh, Judean hills. Uh, but uh, there were, un- you know, a fairly large number of texts, and and I would put, uh, you know, a good number of the biblical texts in this uh, in this category that uh, that were imported, that that were brought to the the library or to the collection. Uh, at Qumran uh, by those uh, men who joined the sect. Uh, they had uh, their own possessions, their own libraries that were uh, you know, traveling along with them. And when they joined, uh, their possessions became a uh, community possession. Hmm. So there, there are a number of things that, uh, that, that were added in, the, in that way. Uh, and there, therefore, there are a number of outliers in the, uh, in the scrolls, in manuscripts that occur uh, you know, that only in one copy that uh, we might question as to how, um, how closely related they actually are to the, uh, to the uh, doctrine, the theology of the sect. And there's still uh, excavation going on up at the Qumran site, correct? You, you know, I'm not sure uh, what's going on there right now. I've lost uh, contact since Hanan Eshel died. Hanan was a friend, uh, and he was the archaeologist uh, on site. Uh, I I don't know currently uh, what's uh, what's being done there. Mm-hmm. All right, Rob, you wanted to talk about the Sadducees. Well, or sectarianism I'm in sorry, general, sectarian, too. Yeah. Dr. Abeck, you know, I, I uh, think of this line from Josephus in his life. Basically, he's giving an autobiography, and he tells about when he was 16, he, he decided, you know what, there's all these different uh, sects among our people, and he mentions the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, and how he he wanted to choose the best one, right? And so he goes and he learns and, and is in this position almost like you think of like this religious market, marketplace. Now, of course, he's writing probably, what, in the 90s here. So this is, right. you know, maybe three decades after the destruction of the temple. Um, but it, it, nevertheless, he's, he's painting this picture of, you know, it's almost like you're at a bookstore, you know, and you've got these different... Uh, ways you can go, you know, which book am I going to buy and I'm going to study them all out and then I'm going to make this decision. Uh, from what you know of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls and then in, in this fragmentation, if you want to call it, or uh, sectarianism, you know, there's issues with the term sect, I understand that. But um, I was wondering if you could, could you, is it, can we get mileage by thinking of it as almost like a religious marketplace? Uh, you, you know, when we think of 
Roman opposition or uh, uh, not opposition, but uh, oppression, I meant to say, and, and mm-hmm. like being in the land occupation and kind of that there's these different groups saying, hey, we're the we're the we're the real thing. No, don't listen to those other guys. We're the real thing. I, could you talk of, of just about that nature of, of sectarianism or fragmentation, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, you're right. Sectarianism is a, is a word that is a bit difficult. You know, that, that's in the eye of the beholder for sure. And I suppose we could call all of these sects, uh, each one of them would say we are the true way. All the others are sects. Uh, I think that's one uh, one uh, very important uh, addition that the scrolls have brought uh, into the conversation. Before the scrolls were found, uh, we uh, we tended to think of Judaism at this time as more or less monolithic, uh, but uh, now we know that it was uh, it was highly divided. Uh, and and the, of course the clues were there all along. We, we have the New Testament uh, for certain, but now we know that it was even more divided than we thought before. And I suppose to some degree you're right. Uh, you, know, there, you know, there were choices that one could make. Uh, each one uh, had its claims as to the, uh, the true way, uh, the real way, the, the, uh, the way that was most pleasing to God. And uh, in that way, I don't think it's, uh, it's much different today, you know, either in Judaism or Christianity. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of the sense I get. And now, of course, like with the Josephus, it is after the fact, you know, the destruction. Yes. But but there's a there's kind of this funny. Uh, I just I can't help but kind of laugh when I'm reading that because it sounds so modern. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. You know, these uh, we tend to think of ourselves of having a, having arrived. You know, we we've we've got the goods now, but. Uh, uh, that that obviously is not the case. <laughs> but I've I've wondered too uh, if if we can from all the data like you described the Dead Sea Scrolls contributing significant amount to this uh, fragmentation of of groups uh, and that they're that it's really kind of pulled the rug out from underneath this concept of a monolithic Judaism that we uh, it seems like it's most plausible that the group that Paul would that we call the influencers or whatever that are influencing the Galatians. Um, that also would not be some monolithic Judaism, but rather probably a local expression uh, in Galatia, probably, or and maybe maybe with some uh, networking at other cities. But by no means uh, should we assume, in my opinion, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Assume that what Paul is uh, arguing against there represents what Paul would consider the true. Uh, representation of the Sinai covenant. Uh, right. Because the, yeah. the the Messiah element is missing, obviously, for one, for Paul. You would not, you know, because uh, uh, Jesus is, you know, the core of, of the covenant from Paul's perspective. Right. Uh, and this other group, whatever these influencers are, uh, apparently either disregarded that or it was just this marginal, yeah, you can think whatever you want about that, but it, it was not central. Yeah, that you know, it, that's a good point, and it uh, brings the question. Uh, you know, we we don't know really uh, all of the uh, theological uh, niceties of uh, of this group that was following Paul around. We don't know how widespread they they were. Uh, we do know that uh, you know the first church council in uh, in Acts fifteen uh, seems to be on the same issues. Uh, and Paul, I think, is uh, is reflecting some of that in Galatians. Uh, certainly, his his uh, difficulties with Peter that are 
expressed in uh, in Galatians chapter two are reflective of the uh, the Acts fifteen sort of scenario on the first church council. You know, what do we do with these Gentiles? So, you know, I, I guess I tended to think that uh, although we don't have access uh, to this terminology uh, aside from 4QMMT, I tend to think that the uh, the theology that is expressed there was probably fairly widespread. But the, you know, that's just a guess. Uh, it, it is. Uh, it's certain that um, you know we don't have access to it aside from MMT, which uh, is suggestive. Uh, but it is. Uh, it's important to me that uh, you know now we have the other side of the argument. Paul was saying, you know, it's by faith that one is reckoned righteous, not by works of the law. And this group was saying, no, it's by works of the law that you're reckoned righteous. Uh, and uh, Paul would point to uh, Abraham as an example of belief, and uh, and you'll be reckoned righteous. Perhaps this group pointed to someone like Phineas, uh, who who they would say, uh, you know, he did the the uh, he was zealous for the law, and was reckoned righteous. I, I'm I'm struck by the number of uh, of contexts in the New Testament, in Paul's uh, writings or in uh, in Acts that Paul is called zealous for the law. As if he had to argue that case, you know, and that would have been a point that uh, these uh, Jews would have brought up about Paul, perhaps that he was antinomian, right? Oh, and you know, for the law, yeah, and you mention it in that article too. Uh, you trace a little bit into the rabbinic tradition about uh, Pinchas or Phineas, and yeah. and also back to the Maccabees and how Paul, particularly the narrative of First Maccabees or even Second Mac, you know, that there's some of that Maccabean. Um, militant zeal, you know, and maybe in that, if we could use the term nationalist, which probably isn't totally appropriate, you know, but but that there could have been uh, some of that, uh, and because, of course, we, I think it is maybe a second Maccabees, where it's kind of this little poem of the fathers, right? Yeah, and I think, the, I think the that's zeal. the first Maccabees 2. That's is what it, it is, yeah. Is that, I knew there was a 2 in there. <laughs> the list of, and the interesting thing there, Rob, is, that, is the fact that, uh, you know, the, uh, Abraham is referenced there. And uh, rather than uh, the Genesis 15, 6 context, you know, where he believes God and is reckoned to him as righteous, uh, the, the uh, reckoning of righteous that, uh, righteousness that is reflected in Maccabees is based on Genesis 22, and Abraham's actions, which I find uh, real fascinating. Mm. You know, it's kind of reread uh, through the uh, through the lens of Pincus and and other uh, Phineas and others like him that were zealous for the law, like uh, you know Levi and Simeon, uh, zealous for the law. Uh, one other, uh, uh, it's kind of a different track, but uh, it, it, keeping in in the Second Temple period and and diversity of Jewish groups. Have you happened to to read the book or come across the work of uh, it's Matthew Thiessen? I think he's got it. It's Oxford University, two thousand eleven. I think it's called Contesting Conversion. Did you have you come? Is, across is this Ma- uh, Matthew Thiessen? Thiessen, maybe that's Thiessen? how you say. It. Uh, yeah, uh, he, he argues that that there was a. a Big tradition in the Second Temple period that circum that uh, conversion is not even possible. That you can't. That there were some groups that just flat out said there was no way for a for a non-Jew to become a Jew. That's interesting. You know, and you, I have not read that this book. If it's the same Matthew Thiessen that uh, that I'm thinking of, though, he actually was. Uh a graduate of our master's program at uh, Trinity Western is is now teaching at the University of uh, St. Louis or St. Yeah, that, Louis that's University. him. 
Okay, right. so it's Thiessen. So now I know how to pronounce it. I haven't met him, so I didn't know. I, I know it's T-H. So I, uh, <laughs> he's but actually, yeah, he, he's a he, good, good Canuck. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and actually, he <laughs> that's good to know. He uh, looks at the Samaritan, let me see, Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, and argues that unless someone, he, he carves out, that, and it's very plausible um, to me, uh, that uh, there was a, some groups, not all, that held to eighth-day circumcision only. In other words, uh, and he looks, particularly in the Book of Jubilees as well, that unless uh, a Jewish male was circumcised on the eighth day, that they were not, they were out of the covenant. In other words, it was a, a very, very sp- specific. It's not just this umbrella circumcision. It's the eighth day, or you are cut off. And he looks at uh, some of these sources, and... Um, it does seem very plausible. So, well, can I ask a question about that, Rob? I know that we're kind of getting off on, uh, of your expertise, Doctor Abig, and I apologize for that. But in the, in that uh, article, does he mention any specific groups? Because I would hypothesize that perhaps he, that perhaps that view might have been taken by the Sadducees as they didn't believe in a resurrection. Oh, I don't know. We'd have to. Maybe we can have uh, an interview with uh, Dr. <laughs> well, Tisa. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I, I have one last question for you, Dr. Abeg. But before I ask that, Rob, is there anything else that you want to ask specifically to Dr. Abeg? Oh yeah, I would. I would. It's kind of completely different, but it's just the nature of uh, encouraging people to study. You know, we kind of have this conundrum. We want to encourage people to read the Bible in, in any language. You know, we just want them to pick up their Bible. You know, many of us they have Bibles and we never read them. Uh, even in English, and we have how many different English translations and how many commentaries available to us. And then there's, but we also want people to study, uh, and, and we need, you know, the body of Messiah needs people to really dive in and and study the history and the languages to where, like Dr. Abig, like you've done, where not only Hebrew, but now you're looking at the specific first century world, how they used the Hebrew language to to further their that group's agenda. Um so if I'd, I'd like to hear your comments on the nature of Bible study in general in the body of Messiah. How, how can we encourage uh, people to move forward in their studies? And how do you see the, uh, the role of the language scholar uh, in, in the body as well? Boy, that's, that's a very good question, and it is a question that, uh, that I have struggled with myself. You know, it's certainly not uh, you know, the issue that we need to study the language. That, uh, that's at the very heart and soul of uh, who I am. Uh, but how to encourage uh, the, um, you know, the community to take this on uh, and to encourage uh, young people to, uh, to make it a center of, uh, of their uh, of their life goals, as it were. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, learning the guitar or learning the piano. You know, how, how much different is it uh, learning and uh, continuing to grow in Hebrew and Greek, for example? You know, those are, uh, those are important things. You know, at Trinity, I have noticed in the past, I've been at Trinity now for 20 years, and in the first, uh, say, five years, uh, maybe eight years of my, uh, my work there, uh, here, I... I uh, had Hebrew classes that were as many as 45 students, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. Uh, I'd see students on campus carrying interlinear Bibles. Uh, this <laughs> is back in the late uh, 90s. They weren't even in language classes. You know, they mm-hmm. just wanted, there was, there was a hunger to, uh, to know the language. There was a sense in which 
one, if one could uh, come to grips with the language, one could understand the scriptures better, and there was a de- desire to uh, to know the scriptures. Uh, my current class this year, I started with uh, with uh, nineteen, and I'm down to ten now oh, in wow. the second semester, and that's a mere shadow of what it was twenty years ago. And if anything, I I know better now and teach better than I ever did before. So I don't think that's an issue. <laughs> I, get, I get fairly good ratings on RateMyProfessor.com. I don't get any of the hottie, uh, uh, you know, that, that doesn't come up. But, you know, the actual teaching is uh, seems to come off pretty good. So what has changed? Uh, it seems that we're in a kind of a slump in, uh, in the uh, hopefully this is cyclical and we'll come back out of it. But uh, I don't know how to change this. I have, uh, I have gone after it myself, uh, trying to create uh, various ways of, uh, of excitement within the class that uh, could, would communicate to students, get those numbers back up again. But it, uh, it does seem we're in, in a bit of a slump here in the, uh, mm. the two ta- 2010s. Mm-hmm. And I would, uh, I would sincerely like to change that. I'd, I'd be interested uh, what kind of uh, success you've had in uh, communicating that to, uh, to your uh, younger uh, community. Boy, you know, it's the same, it's the same issue. We usually have uh, initial enrollments that are a higher number. And, and um, you know, on the, with the online format that we use at Torah Resource Institute, we're um, – you know, serving the needs of people who are working professionals. And so this is already marginal time for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And in some cases, though, we have, uh, and it's, it's just a really wonderful thing to see, uh, you know, a, a strong home fo- homeschooling uh, family commitment where there's uh, parents that are learning so that they can get their kids started earlier. So they see the value, and um, but also they're looking to, to help build up uh, within the family, the next generation. And so, uh, you know, we're s- still in our infancy, but uh, I just know that, you know, with the Lord's help, we'll, there will be some good fruit there, but mm-hmm. we might not see it for another decade or so. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, as, as you were talking, I, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, I've always wanted to uh, have a language class uh, in our church fellowship. I attend an Anglican church in uh, in Abbotsford. And uh, a couple of years ago, we had uh, some adults that went to Israel and uh, just came came back just really interested in uh, studying Hebrew, which I thought would last about, uh, you know, four or five weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're on uh, Lesson 38, and it's almost up to two years now that we've been uh, pushing oh, wow. on that's Wednesday great. night meeting. So that's exciting. Things yeah. like that are happening. Great. Well, hey, I have one last question for you. Every yeah. time I uh, see Dr. Flint, your, uh, your colleague, I always ask him the same question, and uh, I'm going to ask it to you. What uh, now are you, are you working on with the Dead Sea Scrolls? I know that a lot of the time you, you are working on things that uh, you can't talk about because things haven't been published yet, but is there any, uh, anything that we can look forward to uh, coming out in your work, and or is there anything uh, interesting uh, coming out from the Dead Sea Scrolls that we haven't seen yet? Uh, yes, there are some things uh, coming out that uh, are, are of interest. Uh, in, in fact, I have a class this spring. We're working on a, uh, a fragment of, uh, of a document from Qumran that I, it's one of those things I can't tell you about. And you know how, you know the, how that pains me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> it I, pains I us agreed, too. <laughs> I agreed to the person that actually owns the fragment that I, that I can't mention it until it uh, is, 
is published, which will be soon. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we're uh, we have a deadline of uh, of late May to, uh, uh, and there are going to be I think some sixteen fragments that are going to come out in addition. Uh, Brill, there's an edition coming out from Norwegian group uh, Skoyan Collection that uh, uh, has some uh, new fragments. All of these things coming from. Uh, private hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, there, there are some fifty or sixty uh, uh, manuscripts, fragmentary manuscripts, but uh, quite fragmentary, but important nonetheless. That will be uh, becoming known just within the uh, the next year. So that's very exciting. Now, when those come out, are uh, how how are those going to be published? Will they be first presented at the SBL, or will we see them before that? Uh, we'll, I think actually we'll see them before that. Uh, they're not going to be uh, published at SBL or not not going to be pay in papers at SBL. In fact, I've been told I can't read a paper at SBL mm. until this thing is uh, is published. And perhaps the uh, the group that uh, that owns the uh, the fragments uh, will have their own conference. I'm not sure, but uh, it, this is going to happen very quickly. It uh, it's not going to be the uh, the years and years of waiting that we had with the uh, the first group of manuscripts. And these are quite fragmentary, but still quite important. I think the, the community will find them uh, exciting. Great. Uh, aside from that, I'm working on uh, Volume 3 of the Dead Sea Scrolls Concordance, which is all of the um, the refuge caves. So we're not talking about the Qumran text, but we're talking about the Bar Kokhba texts in the main uh, from, uh, you know, from the first and second Jewish revolts, mm. actually. Uh, so that uh, that's very exciting stuff. Uh, there hasn't been a concordance. No one has gathered all this stuff in one place. It's very very difficult to uh, to find the sources at times because they're scattered uh, hither and yon. Uh, and that uh, that material, you know, there's the human side of the story. Really, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the the Qumran texts, or the religious side, the uh, uh, the Bar Kokhba text, the first and second Jewish revolt text, to be most more specific, or the human side, you know, these people that were running for their lives mm. from the uh, the Romans and uh, had uh, all of their life's possessions with them and uh, their files, as it were. You, mm-hmm. know, you can imagine what things you would take with you yeah. if you had to run, your marriage certificate, your, uh, you know, your mortgage for your house, those kinds of things, <laughs> letters. Dr. Abe, could you yes. talk, now are those in Aramaic? Uh, they're split between Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, and it, actually, that's a very interesting uh, subject in and of itself. You know what uh, what language was the spoken language of that time? Uh, mm-hmm. They are split between Aramaic and Hebrew, with a few Greek. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I, th- I thought I thought Aramaic for sure. I wasn't sure about the Hebrew. That's great. Yeah, it, actually, there seems to have been uh, a national fervor that was uh, that was reestablishing. You know the. Be- you know, because of the national fervor, uh, reestablishing uh, Hebrew as attempting to anyway as a lingua franca, it probably comes back. We could talk to these guys about the issue we just talked about in the previous conversation. How do you get young young people interested in in studying Hebrew? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Two, two, well, now, didn't the Bar Kokhba they minted some coins that had Hebrew on them, right? Yes, they did. Yeah. So there was a, a kind of this uh, back to this idea of a nationalist kind of ideology. Um, you know, embedded there in the in the coinage, very definitely, yeah. And the letters uh, they they are definitely uh, making a point of writing in Hebrew and signing their names in Hebrew, hmm. communicating in Hebrew. It's uh, quite interesting. And of course, some of these documents actually have Bar Kokhba's signature on them. That's really fascinating. Great. Well, and then I've got uh, a commentary, or not a commentary, but a text edition actually that I'm doing on uh, on uh, the War Scroll. 
So oh, right. I, I began with the War Scroll. That was my dissertation. Yeah, that was your PhD. Yeah, okay. Your yeah. So I'm ending with the War Scroll, as it were, kind of bookends around my career. Kind of nice. Exciting. <laughs> Quick question back to the Bar Chukwa. Did yeah. he sign it? Is it Kosaba then, though, as the way he signs it? Or did he Kosiba, adopt it? Yeah, right. Okay, so the, the, the later rabbinic story is that uh, Rabbi Akiva called him Kokhba to identify him with the messianic uh, exactly the uh, story, right? Son of the star, the, the numbers passage. But in terms of the way he signed his own name, he didn't say Kokhba. No. <laughs> okay. I, just did, I didn't know if he, he said, hey, okay, the rabbi called me. But, of course, that's a later story, right, with the, the rabbi, so we don't know how much of that is. Uh, you know, probably some of the basics are, are true. All right. Well, hey, Dr. Abeg, we know how busy you are, and we thank you so much for taking uh, the time to talk with us and uh, your excellent insight into the Dead Sea Scrolls and 4QMMT. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Oh, I enjoyed talking to you, fellas. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me on your program. Absolutely. Uh, Rob and I will be right back after this commercial break. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. This is Torah Resource Radio. Biblically based, honoring Yeshua, upholding Torah. Learn more about the history of the Bible in Torah Resources series, How We Got Our Bible. Learn about the history and issues related to how the Bible we now have came into existence. 188-page book, which includes pictures of manuscripts and examples of historically significant Bibles. This book also deals with the history of manuscripts, variants in the manuscripts, canonicity, inspiration, and much more. This series also comes with recordings of 11 class sessions taught by Tim Hegg that takes you through the book step by step. Learn about history and issues related to how the Bible we now have came into existence. Find How We Got Our Bible today only at TorahResource.com. My motivation to attend Torah Resource Institute was primarily to learn for myself to investigate and to search the scriptures, to be diligent, to understand what God has communicated for me personally so that I can apply to my life, uh, sanctify his name and teach my family how to uh, walk in his ways. Since attending Torah Resource Institute, it's affected my ability to communicate with others, the hope I have and the reason for my beliefs. And uh, it's benefited the community that I attend as I'm able to answer questions that I wasn't able to answer before, questions I didn't even know uh, that I had. Okay, language classes are difficult no matter where you take them, and uh, you have to be disciplined and ready to do them uh, at a distance. And uh, the, the course information and the, the books provided are great, and the forums, the online forums help. And uh, it's just a matter of disciplining yourself to, to get the courses done and to to stick with it and to pull through, even though in the beginning they are challenging with, with uh, language courses especially. The teachers at the school are great. They, uh, they're very busy and they 
somehow make time for all the questions and responses that come from the students, whether it be on the forum or by email. And uh, for instance, I'm taking a class now on first century Judaism with Rob Vanhoff. And he's done a great job of bringing together the articles and the information from various scholars, different viewpoints, and teaching us how to think and how to critique, how to digest the various scholarly articles and theologians that will come across our, our desks, across our eyes, and, and that we will run across in life. That's, that's what Tor Resource Institute has done for me. My name is Glenn Minnis, and I'm a student at Tor Resource Institute. Torah Resource Radio is made possible by the support of listeners like you. to the Rob and Caleb show. That's right. You are listening to the Rob and Caleb show. And if you just joined us, we've been talking to Dr. Martin Abeg, uh, professor and expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Trinity Western University. Rob, did you have fun with that one? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, man. I, you know, uh, I, we see Dr. Abeg from time to time, and uh, he's always at the SBL. It's always nice to see him. We actually had a plane ride back to Seattle with him. Uh, I didn't really talk to him on the plane ride, but uh, yeah, we see him every every year at the uh, ETS and SBL meeting, and it's it's always good to see him. Um, just a few things here. I got a email from someone asking me. Um, how they were supposed to listen to, or how much it was going to cost them to listen to the radio after the, the TR radio after uh, January 1st. Uh, let's clear that up right now. If you have heard that it's going to start costing you money to listen to Tor Resource Radio, that is not correct. Uh, Tor Resource Radio will always be free. You can always listen to Tor Resource Radio free. You'll always be able to listen to the Rob and Caleb show free. Um, just go to Torah Resource Radio. Listen to it like you're listening to it right now. The only thing that's going to change is uh, the on-demand feature. That is, to go in and download or to listen to past broadcasts whenever you want to, that'll cost money. And uh, it won't cost a lot of money. And quite frankly, if you don't have the money to buy an on-demand pass and you want to uh, be able to access that information and, and those audios, uh, let me know. We'll bring you on air. You can uh, challenge the mighty Rob Van Hoff with some <laughs> trivia, and if you win, we'll give you a free we'll give you a free one year subscription to our on demand feature. Um, so, and honestly, with the on demand feature, I know I'm plugging this a lot right now, but with the on demand feature, it is going to be well worth the money, just because uh, it, basically there's going to be hundreds of hours of audio that you're going to be able to download whenever you want and listen to whenever you want. Um, and the only reason we're charging is because it is ending up taking a significant amount of time for uh, our programmer, Gary Springer, and some of the other people to be able to bring you guys that ability to download uh, the audio. So, uh, But never fear, you'll be able to listen to Torah Resource Radio whenever you want. Well, um, I had a whole lot of fun with Dr. Abeg, and uh, the other thing that I want to know about from our listeners is this. I 
have been pondering whether or not we should open the Rob and Caleb show up to calls. Uh, would it be beneficial to you as a listener to be able to call in and talk to us? If that is something that you want to be able to do, shoot us an email, radio at TorahResource.com. And let us know that you want to be able to talk to us live on the air. And if that's the case, we might just move that way. So, Rob, before we uh, take off, we've been talking now for a little while, but uh, before we take off, what are your thoughts about what Dr. Abeg said? And why don't you clear up for me a little bit about, you know, I wasn't, I, I was trying to track with him what he was talking about, the difference between uh, his view and N.T. Wright's view. Why don't you try to uh, clear that up for me? What was his main point on that? Well, uh, N.T. Wright's view is that the MMT or the works of the law mm-hmm. described in the Qumran community uh, are talking about something completely different than what Paul's talking about works of law in the, in this point, that the works of the law for the Qumran community were extra biblical. In other words, they were anchored in script, they were anchored in commandments, but they had very specific interpretive stances on how those commandments were to be uh, correctly uh, executed or, or done, performed, mm, mm-hmm. if you will. Okay. Um, so they were extra biblical, and there were some that were just extra, uh, extra biblical things that don't even really appear in the written Torah, and but are yet called Torah by this community. Mm-hmm. Um, N.T. Wright says, says, yeah, that's all fine and good, but when Paul's talking about it, Paul's talking about key commandments of the Torah, not about interpretations of them, but just commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what Dr. Abeg would would suggest is that that pressed hard enough that these these groups that uh, or this let's say it's a group that Paul was kind of arguing against in Galatians really did probably have some extra biblical uh, mixed in with their biblical mm-hmm. uh, it, with in other words that the works of the law um, is probably going to be just as um, interpretive in its in its actual codification and, well, and i know we didn't we, we could have pushed that and got well, into that more detail but that's where that's where he parts and and the point is that he made it uh dr abeck made was it's almost like different christian groups arguing about baptism mm, like well, is it sprinkle versus immersion <laughs> is it infancy or is it is it uh coming to faith you know all these little things that aren't really spelled out in the scripture can become dogma and that that's what works of the law is. Well, you know, I, I didn't want to put him in a, in a uh, place where he was uncomfortable. He himself said he goes to an Anglican church. I was going to ask him, you know, it would be interesting to kind of push a little bit. And, um, you know, I don't know if I'll, I, I don't think this would ever necessarily be appropriate, but it would be interesting to hear his thoughts on then how does that play into his view of the Torah being done away with. If the quote unquote works of the law wasn't actually talking about uh, you know the 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 Torah commandments itself, as Dr. Piper might uh, suggest, or wasn't speaking towards uh, ethnic uh, laws like Dr. Wright would suggest, like keeping kosher or keeping the Sabbath. Then how would that play into uh, Dr. Abeg's view of the Torah being uh, done away with? Now, I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't want to put words into Dr. Abeg's mouth because. Um, 
I'm not sure where he stands on that. I don't know if he would consider Sunday to be a Sabbath and how he keeps that um, and and, and things like that. So I don't want to speak for him. But uh, that was something that I was interested in. Yeah, I I agree. You know, I'm I'm glad that we had a chance to to chat with him and and dive into, you know, some of the basic significant points of this, what we call the Halakhic letter or 4QMMT with respect to Paul. Um, Of course, you know, for N.T. Wright, uh, who's also Anglican, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot writing on that the works of the law that Paul's talking about are actual commandments of the Torah, like commandments from God at Sinai, rather than an interpretive tradition uh, being enforced around it, similar to we see, you know, the the, uh, traditions of the elders that Yeshua is coming against, right? And Mm -hmm. and there's another example where it's not the, it's not the actual commandment that's in dispute. It's, it's, it's some sort of institutionalized tradition that now is being forced and people are being judged for not, um, upholding these extra biblical traditions. And, and I lean towards that. I would, I lean towards works of the law. I, I, to me, the data is just there, but I, but from, to be fair, I'm, I'm open to Torah being, you know, not done away with, whereas, uh, any, one who comes from a strong tradition saying, you know, that the Torah or the ceremonial versus moral division of the commandments and those are done away. And, you know, if you're, if you're coming from that framework, it might not be so evident to you. Well, you know, it's interesting because the whole idea of works of the law be, uh, you know, the way that Dr. Abeg is kind of uh, pushing for it, it works well, in my opinion, it works well for the new perspective on Paul. That is that uh, Paul was not speaking against salvation by uh, works, uh, works of the Torah, uh, the new perspective on Paul would say that's not, that wasn't even an argument in the first century. No one thought that you could be uh, uh, saved by doing works of the Torah, but rather that Paul was speaking against salvation by ethnicity, which is if you're Jewish by blood, you're quote unquote saved or you're in, and if you're not Jewish by blood, then you have to go through this ritual and become quote-unquote Jewish, become one of us, and then you're saved. So salvation by ethnicity. I would say that, in my opinion, uh, the the term works of the law, the way that Dr. Abeg has described it, works well with, with the new perspective on Paul. And I think it kind of uh, puts more oomph behind the punch of, of evidence. Um, but it doesn't work for uh, that view if you're coming from Dr. Wright's point of view, which is that the ethnic parts of, you know, what, what Dr. Wright would consider et- the ethnic parts of the Torah uh, are done away with, i.e. Exactly. keeping that, the Sabbath. The and, question and is, are laws. they anchored in actual God's actual commandments, like Yeshua siding with the, the commandments over the traditions of the elders? Mm. Or, and and N.T. Wright says, no, works of the law in Paul is not talking about traditions of the elders. It's mm-hmm. talking about the actual commandments. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's where uh, I just think that you, you hit a ceiling there, you know, and you're, he's carrying a, a tradition and, and he, he's just, this is the way he's been anchored in his, his view. And I'm grateful for his scholarship. It's been very helpful. But I, I, I part with Dr. Wright on that angle. And what I appreciate about Dr. Abeg is that uh, now he, he he was the first to say, you know, he says, I haven't really pushed this justification in my own studies. This is not, he's not claiming to be a theologian. Mm. He's, he's a text scholar of ancient Hebrew, um, you know, feet on the ground in the, in the 
translating and trying to understand these new uh, fragments, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's just a different specialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like last week, you know, we, we were blessed to have uh, Dr. Brown, uh, Dr. Brown, whose specialization is in uh, in terms of his training is in well, Hebrew it, Bible and the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language, and um, you know, so so we're not asking for these guys to give us their theology. Well, it's um, interesting you say that, Rob, because you know, to to all the people who uh, sent me emails saying, you know. Well, you can't trust Dr. Brown about Hebrew because of his theology. Well, you know, my question to to those people would be, then do you think that uh, you can't trust Dr. Abegg's, you know, view on the Dead Sea Scrolls because of his theology? He said himself, he goes to an Anglican church. Well, no, uh, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, You know, we trust Dr. Abegg and his work on the Dead Sea Scrolls because he's an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and that's his expertise. A- am I going to agree with his theology as an Anglican? No, not across the board. Uh, and the same would go with Dr. Brown. Am I going to agree with Dr. Brown and his theology across the board? Of course not. Here, but, here's another important point on this. Both, yeah. both these uh, doctors that we've had on lately mm-hmm. studied in institutions where there were just as many uh, interested Jewish scholars as Christian and uh, uh, Dr. Brown studied at NYU, where his mentor was Jewish, a lot of Jewish colleagues and teachers there who are also pursuing the truth of this specialization, whether it's the ancient Hebrew language. So these are in- independent of a, a theological, like a seminary type of environment. Same thing with Dr. Abeg. He, sure, he did his MDiv in a, a Christian institution, but then he studied at Hebrew University Jerusalem, and then finally at Hebrew Union College, which is a Jewish institution. Uh-huh. You know, now of course that's a that's one of the main uh, campuses for the for the Reform uh, Jewish community because they do have a, a rabbinic school there where you, you know the people could study and become ordained as a, a Reform uh, rabbi. Mm-hmm. But that his specialization was in the PhD side of the ancient languages. And they had an amazing Jewish scholarship, uh, uh, Jewish scholars there mm-hmm. uh, doing the teaching. And so what my point here is that there's where these gentlemen have studied and earned their stripes in terms of academia was not uh, one sided. They were they were confronted all the time with the difference between Jewish and Christian tradition. That's right. Well, hey, if you uh, if you have been inspired by Dr. Abeg today and you want to take some Hebrew classes, you don't even have to leave your home to do it. Uh, come take Hebrew at Torah Resource Institute. Uh, Tim Haig teaches the beginning Hebrew and Hebrew exegesis classes. And then if you want to move on and take classes in Aramaic or in Greek, then the mighty Rob Van Hoff <laughs> is the one who teaches those classes. And uh, they are all very good classes. Uh, i got to plug it a little bit. You not only get video you get audio, you get books, you get DVDs, you get uh, one-on-one uh, in terms of one-on uh, face-to-face interaction with your teacher uh, in live classes each week. It is uh, We try to make the, the uh, language classes as uh, personable and uh, as good as possible close to a live uh, class. So 
come take a class with us if you uh, really want. They're hard. They are. It's very hard to learn a, a new language, but uh, it's worth it in the end. Well, our sincere, sincere thanks to Dr. Abeg. We know how uh, busy he is. And next week, I don't think we've even talked about what we're going to talk about next week. So if you have an idea of what you want to hear us talk about, please send us an email, radio at TorahResource.com. That's radio at TorahResource.com. Don't forget to follow Rob Van Hoff and myself on Twitter. You can follow Rob at, at Rob Van Hoff, two Fs in Van Hoff. You can follow me at Caleb Hegg, two Gs in Hegg. And uh, also, if you are on social media, on uh, the m- month of March, Torah Resource is going to be looking at the fruits of the Spirit for 31 full days. So follow us on Facebook and, uh, and yeah, enjoy that. We hope that you're going to enjoy it and we're going to have a good time doing it. So until next time, uh, we hope that uh, you have a good week and walk with our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. <laughs>